Washington Post columnist Christine Emba has been watching the approach that young, single people are taking to sex these days, and it isn't pretty. Once more, often it's bad. It's bad sex, full of unwanted, unsatisfying encounters, influenced more by porn than pleasure, that women and men are nevertheless consenting to. Why? In her new book, titled Rethinking Sex, A Provocation, Emba explains how our sexual culture arrived at this moment and suggests a way forward, a way to bring connection, empathy, and, dare I say love, back into intimacy. A way to, perhaps, fulfill all of those promises that sex makes, but isn't delivering. So Christine, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So usually I start these interviews by asking why you decided to write this book. Um, But in this case, I think we need to start with what is happening out there? So for those of us, <laughs> for those of us who aren't in the dating world, and maybe for those who are, but can't see the forest for the trees, can, can you explain? Sure. I mean, that, that kind of answers actually your first question too. Um, what is happening out there is the question that I sought to answer both as a journalist and uh, as a young single woman trying to date in the current environment. Um, You know, as a journalist, I've always been interested in questions of culture and society and ethics, how we treat each other, what we owe to each other. And then, of course, I exist as a woman in the world. And so back in 2018, at the height of the Me Too moment, I was writing a number of columns about that kind of particular conflict, Um, the Harvey Weinsteins, the Matt Lowers. And The Me Too moment showed that some of the problems that we thought that we had moved past when it came to sex consent and liberation had not gone away, first of all. And, you know, some of those cases, the very high profile ones, had sort of clear answers as to what the problem was. You know, Matt Lauer, you can't uh, press a button under your desk and like lock an underling in your office. But other ones, the stories that actually went most viral, surface tricky issues that weren't so easily resolved and that were causing young people and women especially a lot of pain and sadness. So I'm thinking of, you know, stories like the New Yorker short story, Cat Person, which I think was one of their most read or maybe the most read piece of short fiction they've ever published, um, or the Aziz and Sorry debacle where the comedian invited uh, a woman home from a date and pressured her into sexual activity that she later described as the worst night of her life. Uh, These were stories in which, you know, consent wouldn't have solved the problem. They were ostensibly consensual situations. And yet, yeah, the women in particular, but also both sides of the equation were leaving these encounters really dissatisfied. And the fact that so many people seem to relate to these stories, that there is so much outcry and discussion of them online and conversations that I had with friends and strangers, kind of made me think that something was going on. So I wanted to dig into those kind of more deeply and take stock of where we were, trying to figure out what was ailing our sexual culture such that these questions were still recurring and these problems were still unsolved. You know, what assumptions are we holding about sex that aren't serving us? Where did we think the sexual revolution should have taken us? And where did we actually end up? And then of course, 
what sexual ethic do we need if consent isn't enough? Now, I should probably interject here that the bulk of the conversation you have in the book, and you say this, is about heterosexual, cisgender um, couples. But, you know, you, you, you talk about how there's something in the book for everyone, and you're really only focusing on that because that's where our cultural scripts run the deepest, which I think is a good way of putting it. So we should just probably just put that in there, that that's the reason why the conversation that you're having is about what it is. Um, and I want to talk about that consent question, um, partly because we are, of course, here at Princeton, you know, we're on a college campus. Um, but you write about how consent isn't enough. And yet that's kind of what's being where the conversation is, that there's just one question that needs to be asked, right? Why is that the dominant conversation? And how, how is that influencing these interactions? Yeah, great question. And, you know, one of the <laughs> one of the things that makes this book maybe quite relevant to the PAW podcast is that um, one of the one of the most important chapters in the book um, stems from visiting Princeton uh, as a journalist and thinking back to my time there as a student. In particular, there is this orientation week sort of play that students watch. Um, back when I was a student, it was called Sex on a Saturday Night. Um, now I think it's called The Way You Move. <laughs> and I write about it in the book, seeing it both back then and then uh, in 2018 when I was back on campus. And student actors, you know, act out this story of a Saturday night going to the street. Um, and it culminates in two students getting very drunk and a sexual assault happens. And then sort of the curtain falls and freshmen are told to go back to their res calls and, you know, talk to their advisors about it um, and what they've learned. And I was interested and kind of saddened by the fact that at least in, you know, when when I watched um, this play in 2006, uh, the takeaway was that mm, sexual assault is bad. Don't drink too much. OK, helpful, but not the entirety of the question. And in 2018, it seems that the lesson still hadn't really changed, um, except on campus this time, there was a sort of breakdown after the play in which an administrator came on stage and said, you know, he didn't get consent from her. <laughs> uh, you shouldn't have sex with a classmate without their consent. This is a dangerous gray area. And to me, I was sort of like, again, Yes, consent is important, but is that the only problem here? This sort of legalistic issue of, well, this person didn't give you consent and you could get in trouble with the administration for that. It seemed like a much bigger problem was, you know, the question of how do we treat each other? What would a good encounter actually look like? Consent may be sort of the floor here. You have to get consent for an encounter to be literally not rape or sexual assault. But don't we want more than not rape? <laughs> Shouldn't we be thinking about not just what makes our encounters legal or licit in the eyes of an administration, but actually good for ourselves and for the other person? You know, and we, we should point out it's not just Princeton that that, that this really is everywhere across college campuses and outside of college campuses, too. It reminded me of sex ed in high school in the mm -hmm. sense that the conversation was very light on the deeper meanings behind sex. We, we didn't get that 
You know, there, there was a conversation like where you're talking about like, what do we owe each other? It was more like perfunctory. It was like, you need to know these medical details kind of leaving it or, or like consent kind of leaving it up to everything else is up to you, which is right. sort of interesting. Um, you came from an interesting perspective as well, because you were raised in an evangelical church, which of course had you know, famously, these churches have um, some pretty prescriptive uh, discussions when it comes to sex. So do you want to talk about that at all and how that influenced your thinking on this? Yeah, sure. This was definitely an, an interesting part of writing the book. Um, but I think that actually my background, as you said, kind of growing up evangelical and then actually converting to Catholicism later in life, gave me an interesting perspective on the question. Um you know, because of my background, I think I, I spent a good amount of time sort of outside of the <laughs> the circle of people having sex um, and being in these relationships and encounters. And so I had a lot of time to observe. Um, you know, most of my friends, I would say, are secular, not religious at all. And so it was interesting hearing kind of the messaging that they got and were sharing about sex, what it should be and what it should look like. The idea that you know, having as much sex as possible was liberating, um, that actually this is sort of what you're supposed to be doing as, you know, a modern young person in the world, um, that something major was missing from your life if you weren't having these encounters. Meanwhile, I, I wasn't and my life was perfectly fine, which, you know, left me asking some questions. And then kind of when I entered sort of our sexual culture and started dating and having encounters for myself, I was able to contrast that messaging that I'd been hearing with what was actually going on. You know, what kind of encounters actually were good? What part of that messaging, that sort of sex in the city um, sort of story or narrative that I was supposed to be chasing after actually served me when I did sort of try it out? You know, for all the discussions with friends over, you know, brunch or on a night out about, you know, hookups, etc. How did they actually feel afterwards? Were they really as satisfied as they thought that they should be? And I found that in many cases, no, for all of our conversation about, you know, liberation, especially as opposed to um, the supposedly kind of puritanical and, and frigid space of my religious upbringing. Um, a lot of that liberation seemed to be making people more miserable than one might expect. Well, you mentioned Sex in the City, and I think that sort of cultural touchstone seems to loom pretty large, or where the messaging that we got from it over this whole conversation. So if you could back up and tell us, so how did we get here? How did this idea that more sex is better and liberating how did how did that happen? You know, it's a question of how sort of the idea of what the sexual revolution was supposed to be and what sex positivity really means changed over time. Um, so in the book, I talk about um, sort of the original feminist movement um, and sort of the original discussion of sex positivity, which, you know, at its very basis was meant to say that women were equal to men and as fully human as men are and should be able to explore their sexuality and, and be excited by it uh, in the same way that men could and that it would be in fact positive for both sexes to be able to pursue that equally. But over time that sort of shifted 
um, that kind of feminism was co-opted by sort of an almost performative kind of capitalist idea of what sex and liberation should look like. So you went from the, we're all exploring, we want to be kinder, more gentle people, um, in the words of uh, one early feminist, to the sort of sex in the city ideal that said that actually to prove that you're a woman, you should be out there having sex in the way that men do, and usually kind of the worst kind of cisgender heterosexual man. Um, you shouldn't care, actually, to have feelings is to be tied down. That was a bad thing. You can sort of tot up your encounters as as though they're, you know, shoes or anecdotes to trade over brunch, something that you don't really care about. And that's what sex positivity looks like. And I interviewed a, a lot of young women and men for this book, and I was shocked by how many times sex in the city in particular came up in conversation. Um, so many of us watched that show um, and sort of took it as the script for what modern womanhood looked like, um, for what, you know, being a, a sex positive person living in a city uh, in the world looked like, that this was, you know, something that we were supposed to emulate. And so many of us did, but found that it wasn't making us happy. When you talk to women and you talk to quite a few for your book, um, what do they say about the encounters that they're having about, about dating? Good, bad, how do they come away? How do they feel about themselves afterwards? There is a lot of variation, I would say. But I think the one thread that I heard again and again and that I saw throughout the interviews um, was that when it comes to sex, something, you know, just isn't quite right. Um, so I feel like a, a typical interview is a conversation that I had with uh, a girl. I used a lot of pseudonyms in the book for kind of obvious reasons um, named Rachel where, you know, she talked about how she was opinionated. She felt in control in most areas of her life. But when it came to sex, you know, she wouldn't say that she had been pushed into anything necessarily, or even that she had been, you know, sexually assaulted in a criminal way, but she was still able to reel off just a list of unhappy encounters with would-be romantic partners, you know, where sex was consented to out of a misguided sense of politeness or, you know, extreme acts were suddenly, you know, requested and occasionally allowed and degrading insults were sort of a regular part of encounters. And she didn't like how she felt afterwards and couldn't quite put a finger on what exactly was going on. And, you know, I would also ask what, what do you want? from sex, actually? What do you want from romantic encounters? What are you looking for? And so many people would say that they were looking for, you know, an ideal sexual encounter would involve care, involve sort of intimacy. And yet, for some reason, that wasn't something that they could find. And they didn't know why. And in some cases, they also felt that it was sort of uncool to even ask for that, to say that they wanted something more. And so this disconnect between what people actually wanted and what really felt good to them, both physically and emotionally, and what they were sort of settling for and allowing, the Delta seemed huge. So you have some ideas for how to maybe fix this 
or reorient our thinking in a way that would be better. You want to tell us about some of those uh, ideas? Yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the things about this book was, well, I suppose I should say one of the inspirations for kind of writing this as a book was that the Me Too moment and, you know, these conversations that we continue to have afterwards showed that people were aware that something was off in our sexual culture. We were kind of able to note that something felt bad, that our encounters weren't good. Everybody was sort of in agreement on that. But you can only get so far saying like, yeah, things are bad. It's bad out there. <laughs> you have to figure out where to go next. Um, and I thought that, you know, this book, that Rethinking Sex could try and be a step in that direction, not just bemoaning the state of things, but figuring out what to do. And so, you know, the first step, I think, is just simply honesty, um, being more open and honest about what we really do want, um, what sex really means to us, and the different vulnerabilities that different kinds of people, you know, different genders, different sexualities can can have when it comes to these encounters and being able to be open about that and thus treat people better knowing that. But also when it came to consent, I think a major factor would be, a major factor in improving the sexual culture would be trying to move beyond consent. As I said before, it's a floor, you know, not a ceiling. And I suggest that we should have a higher ethic, um, what I describe in the book as willing the good of the other. The person who you're with isn't just there for your own pleasure. They're there as a partner in this, and you should both have some care for the other person, which doesn't sound like it should be a remarkable thing. It doesn't sound like it should be a remarkable thing. And yet, you know, somehow it's like radical that you're proposing this. And yet, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, there are a number of reasons for this, right? You know, as a society, we tend to shy away from trying to declare behaviors right or wrong. And we don't want to police other people's behavior or even ask too much of other people um, because we might stigmatize them or they might fail us. Um, but I think that in sex and in these sexual encounters, things that touch, you know, so deeply to kind of the heart of, of most people, we need to be able to ask for more. And so willing the good of the other uh, is a formulation that I steal from um, Thomas Aquinas by way of Augustine. And it was actually his definition of love, of what it really means to care for another person, not necessarily in a romantic way, but just treating them as a fully human being. And so when it comes to sex, willing the good of the other would mean not just asking for consent and seeing how far you can go, what you can get from the other person, um, but actually seeking out their good in the encounter and prioritizing that as much as you prioritize, you know, your own good, your own pleasure. And that comes with, you know, a few added responsibilities that consent doesn't necessarily have. You know, one, you actually have to have sort of a conception of what the good is, right? What, what does a good encounter look like? For us to get there, we need you know better sex ed. We need a better understanding of what sex means to us and to society at large. We need to have that conversation. But also, what does the good look like for your partner? Which in some cases, yeah, probably means you know maybe knowing something about them, which could take in fact some time. 
So there might be fewer hookups and, you know, more time spent trying to figure out the other person's good. But I think that even in this attempt, even if we, you know, try to do this and sort of fail or don't, you know, get it perfectly right, just attempting to think about the other person, to put empathy in practice, uh, takes us many steps further to a better sexual world and better sexual encounters than where we are now. I like the idea too of being more honest because it does seem like these women in particular, but probably again, also the men want something. They want a relationship or they want love or they want care or they want this to go somewhere, but they're not admitting it. And if you don't say it, if you don't believe it and you don't tell other people that it's, it's not going to happen. In the book, I talk about uh, the, what I call the tyranny of chill. Um, <laughs> and it's And it's this idea that the best way to sort of approach anything romantic or relationships with another person is to be chill, to not ask for too much, um, to sort of play this game of sort of who cares the least. Um, and this isn't, you know, just a problem that affects women. I think this isn't something that just women are acting out. In many cases, men have just as much pressure um, to sort of perform a certain kind of masculinity that involves not caring. Um, this is also something that you see in, you know, queer relationships too. So it's it's not just women. Um, but, you know, this performance of chill basically pushes people to hide what they want um, to their own detriment. And it's unfortunate because sometimes you see this happening kind of on both sides. In an interview that I did, uh, that didn't make it into a book. You know, I talked to a, a college couple, or rather a college guy who was, you know, telling me about this sort of relationship, situationship that he had had, um, where, you know, he met a classmate. Um, he really liked her and wanted something serious or more serious from her, but didn't want to freak her out. So they hooked up and it was kind of weird and they sort of didn't talk again and their friendship floundered. And he found out later that actually this woman had wanted something more from their relationship, but also didn't say it. And then they had this encounter and both of them had wanted the same thing, but there was this fear of actually being honest about their emotions, about what hooking up and having sex would mean for them. And, Sort of it destroyed the relationship on both sides when something actually beautiful could have happened. And you see in situations like that, that it's not just one person being harmed and it's often not intentional. Um, and I think we want to make that just less common. That's so sad that we're supposed to be so free and yet that sounds like they're so restricted. Right, exactly. You know, there's this idea, of course, that our sort of sexual culture is, is more free than ever before. If in the past there was pressure to to not have sex, to not talk about it, um, to sort of stay chased, I would say, it sometimes felt, and a lot of young people told me this, that in this moment there's pressure to do more, to always appear to be up for it, to not get your feelings hurt, to be sort of down for anything and everything. And to many of them, that didn't feel like freedom. You know, that felt like pressure just from a different and new angle. 
Do you think we can get there? Do you think that these cultural scripts can be changed? You know, I, it's hard to say, it's hard to predict the future. Um, but I'm hopeful, actually. Because I think that we are sort of getting to a point where this discussion can be had in the open. I mean, I think just the reception to rethinking sex and the number of other conversations I've seen people having about sex and our sexual culture, the recognition that something is often something needs to change, uh, is actually percolating on on the surface more. One of the things that actually I have noticed this year um, is sort of a change in attitude towards dating apps, which I talk about in the book as <laughs> one of the many factors that has pushed people towards a sort of a more consumerist and more detached um, sort of sexual culture and style of encounters. You know, this year's the 10th anniversary of the launching of Tinder, which was supposed to revolutionize dating and instead seems to have made it much more horrible. And I'm kind of pleasantly surprised to see more people admitting that out loud, um, you know, that being able to swipe through people and see them as objects actually hasn't been great for them and they would like to do something different now, um, that that culture hasn't been beneficial to them. And so they're backing out of it. They're, you know, stopping their use of apps. They're trying to meet people and not hook up. They may even be going back to sort of dating traditionally. Um, and so I'm interested in seeing where that movement goes. Once people are actually willing to talk openly about their unhappiness and be honest about what they really want from sex, that's when things actually begin to change. You know, I, <laughs> I'm i class of 2010. Uh, I graduated from college a while ago. Uh, and I've noticed that Rethinking Sex has gotten a quite positive uh, reception among college students, actually. And I think that one of the reasons for that is that, as we said in the beginning, we don't have great sex ed in high school, um, at least in the majority of places. And even when it comes to college, there's not that much discussion going on there except you know, don't assault someone, use protection. But if we actually want to begin to change the culture, and if we also, you know, want people, want to set up young people for fulfilling sexual encounters that lead to the relationships that they want earlier in life, we have to start having these discussions early, not sort of waiting for everybody to make us as many mistakes and have as many sad encounters as possible and then figure it out 10 years later. And so, I hope that this begins to open up that conversation much earlier for people um, rather than learning by sad experience. Although, of course, we all do. There's a chance to you know, start out on better footing. That sounds like a great idea. <laughs> That's a really good note to end on as well. Um, so, Christine, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been so interesting. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Podcast is a monthly interview podcast produced by the Princeton Alumni Weekly. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. You can read transcripts of every episode on our website, paw.princeton.edu. Music for this podcast is licensed from Universal Production Music. <laughs>